0: Welcome to this podcast edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise. Today's segment features a conversation with Dr. David Karp, who is the director of the Skidmore College Project on Restorative Justice. He's also the author of The Little Book of Restorative Justice for Colleges and Universities, and he serves on the board of directors for the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice. That's NACRJ.org. For more podcast editions, recordings, resources, and webinars, please visit Restorative Justice on the Rise, all one word.org. Thank you and enjoy this conversation that was recorded live on October 14th. 2018 with Dr. David Carp. Hello and welcome everyone to Restorative Justice on the Rise. Today's edition is going to be focusing on restorative justice on college campuses. And our very special guest is David Karp who is a professor at Skidmore College and the director of the Project on Restorative Justice. He's also the author of the Little Book of Restorative Justice for Colleges and Universities. That's a little book series that if you aren't already familiar with, uh, might like to check that out. It's um, got at least a dozen editions on different restorative justice and peace-building themes, including... Um, like I just mentioned, a book on restorative justice for colleges and universities by David, and then um, Kay Pranis has a book on the circle process, and, of course, Dr. Howard Zare and the little book of restorative justice, I believe, kicked that whole series off. So I just want to welcome you all, before I do a little bit more of an introduction of David, uh, to this um virtual room, basically, that will turn into an evergreen podcast and be posted at restorativejusticeontherise.org. A new thing that we're doing with our series, which was founded in 2011, is creating social media content so that during the dialogue, if there's like a nugget that comes up, we like to take it down um, in our notes and put it into a really nice graphic for everyone to share if they wish um, at Facebook or Twitter. So thank you again for your participation. Without you in this dialogue, we really wouldn't have one. So what I'd like to emphasize, if this is your first time here, please feel free and don't be shy to ask questions of Dr. Karp today uh, by raising your hand, pressing star two on your telephone keypad Also, just FYI, in the webcast, if that's where you're coming in from, make sure that you click on Q&A, the tab which is to the right of the webcast player. There's two tabs there, and one, I believe, is just the general chat tab for you and others to chat while you're on the webcast. So make sure that it's the Q&A tab that you press if you'd like to submit a question. That way, we get it on our end Um, we're we're able to um, find your question and answer in a queue that we have on our dashboard. So, like I said, Restorative Justice on the Rise was founded in 2011 as a dialogue series to shed light on the many solutions in our country, in the United States, that is, and our world that are happening on the ground every day, Um, as a result of a very broken criminal justice system and we're really pleased to enjoy the support of foundations and of private donors and of public support so thank you for being here Um, please keep those coming in if you find this of value right now we're in a period of fundraising and um, really appreciate anything that you can do as a kickback to keep us moving We'll tell you more a little bit about what's going on in the weeks to come and a special Connection series that we're rolling out. But without further ado, let's get into our dialogue with Dr. Karp. And I just, again, want to say a little bit more about David. Um, he's, he's an extraordinary professional, an academic, and he's an author. Like I said, he's the director of the Skidmore College Project on Restorative Justice, He also serves as a board member for the National Association of Communities and Restorative Justice, and not unlike our recent guest, um, Cheryl R. Wilson, who is the president of that board, I just want to throw in that there will be a conference next June in Denver, Colorado, which um, will be hosted by the National Association. So, David, it's just a pleasure to have you here today. Um, It's been long time coming, and I'm really excited, as I'm sure all of us are, to hear more about the work that you're doing specifically with college campuses. Welcome to you.
1: Thanks, Molly. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: And I wondered if if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of, about the background of how you got into the restorative justice field.
1: Uh, well, it's been a long time uh, like 20 years uh, I was doing originally I was doing a postdoc in Washington D.C. at George Washington University and uh, the policy center that I was uh, working with was organizing a symposium uh, with the National Institute of Justice on communities and crime and justice and, uh, and as part of that I ended up uh, learning about the uh, newly minted restorative justice program that had been launched by the Vermont Department of Corrections, uh, their reparative probation program, uh, it was early enough in their launch that they hadn't even heard the phrase restorative justice yet. Uh, they had come up with their own uh, homegrown program, and later everyone pointed out uh, to them that they were that it was a restorative justice program, and then they embraced it. Uh, and um, so I became uh, enamored with that, and I ended up at Skidmore College and realized that Vermont was very close, an hour away, and I could study what they were doing. And so I spent a, a couple of years uh, working with the uh, Department of Corrections, trying to understand what happened when community members and uh, victims met with uh, 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 people who were on uh, probation. Uh, for various offenses and um, uh, so that was my earliest experience and then coincidentally on my own campus there was a an uproar among students about how uh, their misconduct was handled. Uh, there was a very traditional judicial board and uh, and there were a lot of appeals to the uh, sanctions that were given and uh, as I think a pretty good indicator of dissatisfaction is when students appeal.
0: David, are you there? It sounds like we may have lost David. Um, please stay with us and we'll get him back on the line. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, there is a conference in Denver that will be hosted by the National Association for Communities and Restorative Justice, and while we wait for David, um, David, if your line is, it looks like your line is still open, um, we have your mic on for you, so when you arrive back in, just come back on in and we'll pick back up, but please join us, though, in June next next year in Denver, Colorado, for the, um, I think it might be the seventh annual Restorative Justice Conference, um, National Association for Communities and Restorative Justice Conference. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the theme. Um, There are proposals being accepted right now. So if you're interested in submitting one, they are actively receiving proposals at this point, that is, for abstracts. And that's the 7th National Conference um, on Community and Restorative Justice, June 14th through 16 of 2019. The pre-conference training is June 13th of 2019, and that's at the Sheraton Hotel, downtown Denver, Colorado. Um, the theme for the conference is, um, well, actually the theme for the National Association is Shaping Justice for the 21st Century, And NACRJ basically has a a broad sweeping and very poignant vision which employs principles of social and restorative justice seeking transformation in the ways justice questions related to injustice, incivility, conflict, crime, and harm are addressed. It promotes effective forms of justice that are safe, just, equitable, sustainable, reparative, and socially constructive. NACRJ serves as the parent organization for the biannual national conference on community and restorative justice. It provides supports for members as well as the field by making information, resources, and networking opportunities readily available. And, David, if you're back with us, uh, I was just sharing with everyone a little bit about the conference, so um, we were talking a bit about uh, next June. Welcome back.
1: Yeah, thank you. I don't know what happened.
0: Yeah, it's okay. Let's just hop right back in. You were telling us okay. a bit about uh, the boards and kind of your observations about the the punitive sense of of what you were witnessing.
1: Uh, so I'm not sure how far. I kept talking after I realized I was not connected. So um, I'm not sure where I left off exactly, uh, but I'll just say generally, I um, while I was. Uh, studying and uh, the uh, Vermont uh, restorative justice program, uh, we launched our campus based restorative justice program here at Skidmore and that was back in 2000.
0: Wonderful. So, so David, um, when you launched that program in 2000, the campus based program, can you tell us a little bit about um, that process? that you embarked on and maybe who was involved with you? I'm, I'm assuming you probably had some students that were a part of that with you?
1: Yeah, there was a, there was a committee uh, that was uh, organized by the administration to respond to student discontent about the more traditional judicial process that existed then. Uh, and that was made up of, of faculty, staff, and students uh, and I had a chance then to share what was happening in Vermont. Uh, and basically, um, the, uh, we just adopted the Vermont model, or really adapted the Judicial Hearing Board that we had to the Restorative Justice Board model that Vermont had. So structurally, they didn't look that different, but uh, philosophically... They were quite different, and the outcomes uh, were uh, very different in terms of what what the experience was uh, for everyone involved.
0: So, so if you would be willing, I think it would be very interesting to hear uh, sort of a point A through Z um, synopsis of. What, what, you're, what you typically see on a campus when um, harm or a conflict happens and how you step that through. Would, would you be willing to share with us how exactly it works on a very detailed level, uh, I mean a synopsis of it? Sure.
1: Yeah, so I'll give you an example. Um, so a student, a couple of students, sorry, so here's the situation. A couple of students um, were taking some summer classes here, and they uh they were invited to a barbecue <coughs> excuse me uh and um went to walmart to pick up supplies and while they were at walmart they discovered the gun section uh, that exists and uh, neither of them had any experience with guns whatsoever one was from uh, new york city the other uh, was from uh, england and um, And so they ended up buying a BB gun, a handgun that was a BB gun for $29. And uh, on their way back to campus, they uh, took it out of its packaging and loaded it up and then drove around the campus trying it out. Uh, So you can imagine a car driving through the campus with an arm out the window with a, a Boy, gun essentially that looks exactly like a real gun um, while they were shooting at trees and not at people, uh, checking it out. Uh, So, uh, very quickly, campus safety gets uh, 911 calls, uh, shooter on campus, there's uh, quite a panic coming through the dispatcher, police are called. And, uh, and on the radio, one of the facilities guys, uh, hears the, um, hears the concern, happens to see the guys, chases them down in, with his, uh, in his truck, sends them to, uh, back to the, uh, campus safety, uh, and they're promptly arrested, uh, and, um, and then they're also given an, an interim suspension, which is a sort of a standard practice until people can figure out what's going on, particularly when it's a weapon uh, kind of violation. So they were going through, and this happens, uh, both the criminal justice process and the campus disciplinary process, uh, and um, navigating both of those simultaneously. So what would typically happen on a college campus is that there would be an investigation. They would be uh, they would meet with a conduct administrator. The administrator would make a determination about whether or not they violated campus policy and then assign sanctions. And so I'm not exactly sure what would have happened in this case with a more traditional process, but um, it's possible that they would have gotten suspended uh, or they would have uh, been put on some kind of probation, uh, maybe assigned a some kind of fine, um, but it wouldn't be unheard of to get uh, suspension for, for that kind of thing. Uh, and since this was a summer course, they would lose their tuition. They would have to go, you know, move off campus, uh, go home for the rest of the summer, uh, and then start all over again uh, after that period of suspension. And so that's not what happened uh, because in uh, we what we did was hold a restorative conference and so the first task, and I was involved in this one as uh, as a facilitator, the first task was to identify who should participate in the conference. And so that would mean these two guys there uh, find some support people for them and then identify harm parties. And that was a challenge because there was this flurry of uh, 911 calls. Uh, and so we weren't able to identify people who called in but we did invite the campus safety officer who yielded those calls and was, uh, you know, thinking at when they were coming in that there really was a school shooter on campus. Uh, so he represented that perspective. And we invited the guy, the facilities guy, who had seen them and, and chased them down. Uh, and so that was the gathering. Uh, for this particular conference and uh, really part one as in any restorative process is uh, around storytelling and asking the guys questions about what happened and what were they thinking at the time and what have they thought about since and uh, they were able to share uh, what, what their intentions were which were pretty mild uh, unthinking but not m- malicious uh, and uh, they were also, uh, particularly the guy from England, uh, was absolutely puzzled about our culture, which uh, from an English perspective is, on the one hand, all about gun rights, and then on the other hand, as soon as they buy a toy gun, they get arrested. So he was just confused about that uh, and needed to mm. uh, understand better what mm-hmm. that was about. Um, and then there was David.
0: The Right, Sorry, sure, David. Um, can, can you share with us if you did a pre-conference step with them? Yeah. Is there any pre, pre, like do that. you do pre-conferencing? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So I accelerated that. Describe
0: right. that just briefly.
1: Sure. Well, the, so this uh, interim suspension happened, and all this hap- all this decision making was rather rushed because the implications of moving slowly were great for those guys. So. While they were on interim suspension, they could not go to class. And if you know anything about summer college classes, they tend to meet every day uh, for long periods of time, and each day that you miss is almost like a week of course during a regular semester. So the interim suspension, if it were to last, uh, would by default cause them to either fail the class or they'd have to withdraw. So we were motivated in uh, their interest to try and get a conference organized very quickly. So that meant meeting with them individually uh, to talk about the same sets of questions that are asked during the conference, identify support people, meeting with uh, harm parties, explain what their role is, invite them to tell their story, educate them about the restorative process, uh, and then try and schedule uh, this thing. So we were able to do all that within uh, just I think two or three days Um, so that was the pre-conference and then we got to the conference itself when we gathered all these parties uh, and so the uh, dispatcher was able to talk about the impact of fielding these calls and implications of that and the facilities guy said something pretty interesting to the guys he said that based on where they were driving he was thinking that they were heading back off campus and all he could think of was that if they were um, going around the city streets with this guy's arm out the window with the gun and the police caught up with them, that he didn't know what would happen. That they would, you know, they would assume that this was a gun, that they would get shot, that there would be, uh, you know, a, a dire situation on their hands. The police would maybe shoot, would shoot first and ask questions later. And that was a stunner or these guys who had only seen this facilities guy as the person that got them in trouble. And suddenly they realized that he was really trying to save their lives. Uh, And so that was a a very powerful moment in the conference uh, for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then um, there was, uh, you know, quite a bit of discussion about what they could do to repair the harm, to rebuild trust, uh, to address. The predicament they were in academically, uh, and so they were, uh, you know, they were really interested in apologizing to anybody who had been affected, uh, writing apologies uh, to different departments, campus safety uh, facilities, and uh, and or- also organize a, an educational campaign on campus that would help students better understand the campus weapons. Policy, what was permissible, Uh, and the uh, the student from England also wanted to organize a special session for international students to particularly educate them about American gun culture, Uh, and then uh, finally they wanted to do a larger educational campaign about gun violence in America. Uh, So that was partly a a presentations and partly a, a kind of poster or flyer campaign so they were quite uh, busy uh, and at the same time uh, everybody wanted to see them get back uh, into their uh, classes and it was uh, particularly meaning uh, important for one of the students who was going to be a senior and he was taking a class that he needed to graduate but wasn't going to be offered or conflicted with another class that he needed And so he really needed to finish that class, and his support person was his faculty advisor, and that faculty member said he would work with that student to um, do do an independent study or do whatever they needed to do so that he could graduate on time. And that about
0: sums up that case. That's powerful. That is a powerful example, and. I'm just curious. Did you form? What you were describing, um, all the things that it, they were inspired. Um, I'm assuming, you know, at the end of the process and the aha moment you described with the boys around the facilities manager, for example. Um, did you go into some form of of a contract agreement for how they were going to for- more formally repair this as best they could, or how would you describe like? Right. Um, right. Yeah. So that,
1: <laughs> I think that the um, you know the case illustrates like most do you know this balance of accountability and support uh, so a lot of it was very supportive of them to help them learn from their experience uh, and and also be academically successful uh, but there's also a definite accountability first of all it's no small thing to face the people that you've harmed so um they were quite nervous about this and just doing that alone meeting with these folks uh, was uh, I think an important moment in accountability Uh, and then uh, we do uh, negotiate agreements in these meetings with a list of tasks and deadlines and the way it works here and on many campuses uh, there'll there'll be variations on this is that uh, you basically can't register for the next semester's classes or for housing unless you've completed your agreement. So there's um, there's some pretty strong teeth to uh, these agreements and rather than suspending students uh, it's in a sense uh, a self suspension model so they know what they need to do and if they don't complete it they're uh, essentially suspending themselves by not being able to register.
0: And are there, are there peers in these processes, um, student facilitators, community members, David?
1: Yeah, uh, so uh, this varies from campus to campus, but uh, some of our best facilitators over the years have been students. Uh, my assistant director here at, in the Skidmore Project on RJ, Jasmine Story, was one of our ACE facilitators when she was a student uh, and then she graduated and got a master's degree and became an R.J. coordinator uh, at some different schools across the country and is now back uh, working with us doing training uh, and so we have students who uh, facilitate conferences, we have uh, students who facilitate uh, in the other large arena of campus restorative justice uh, circles for community building and that could be in residential life or on teams or in uh, fraternities or other student clubs uh, opportunities for students to gather in circle to talk about small or large uh, issues that are happening uh, in their lives
0: mm, I, I really appreciate what you're bringing with that um, because actually that was one of my questions for you today was uh, about Tier 1 practices which in the K-12 through 12 atmosphere Tier 1 practices as I'm sure most people with us today are, are probably somewhat familiar with simply mean what you were describing um, coming together to talk about important issues and have voices be heard. Would you add anything to that David? Um, what a Tier 1 community building practice might mean?
1: Well there's such variety on mm-hmm. campuses right now in terms of how this um, how tier one practices are used. So it can be faculty facilitating circles in their classrooms. Um, uh, a- any kind of cir- or any kind of sub community gathering could have a circle. Uh, there's a lot of stress on circles for moments of transition, like uh, during. Uh, first-year orientation to help build community either in a residence hall or within a a first-year learning community or seminar Um, some of the uh, the tier one practices are light icebreaker kinds of activities get to know you activities and others are really quite serious Um, we for example um, did some training at Occidental College uh, in California, and they had a, a plan for community building circles for orientation. And this is now a year ago when, at that time period, the, um, the, the demonstration and the violence happened at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Um, and so that was days before their orientation. So what they wanted to do even in the first couple of days on campus uh, with their students was to raise this larger national uh, crisis issue and, and uh, organize circles for the entire first year class around issues of diversity and inclusion and uh, what, what they had heard about this incident and what their concerns were about coming to college and how did they want to uh, make sure that Occidental was a welcoming community for all, con- all, all students uh, uh, from all different backgrounds. Uh, so the Tier 1 circles can be uh, quite serious around larger issues. They can be around um, uh, broader climate issues uh, that's, um, you know, that has to do with red-blue polarization or other uh, national issues, or they could be local issues mm-hmm. like noise on the floor. So everything from noise on the floor to... Um, you know, crisis and democracy.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And are, are you observing that in your um, decades of experience here in this field, that uh, particular to campuses, do you see a connection between um, the stronger implementation of tier one practices and community building practices and the decrease of, you know, of conflict uh, that, that, comes to a point where it needs, you know, a a response system of some sort, like the one you described earlier?
1: Yeah, well, you know, there's not a lot of empirical research on this, but I did see a presentation by uh, folks from the University of Vermont uh, Office of Residential Life, and uh, they, um, uh, they have students facilitating circles or RAs facilitating circles in residence halls on a regular basis. And uh, their findings are really very strong in terms of students feeling a, a, a very strong, positive sense of community on their floors. Uh, a sense of connection. Um, they're, they're feeling like they had a voice uh, in addressing issues. Uh, Uh, that are uh, that are happening for them Um, and uh, they had some evidence of decreases in high-risk drinking in uh, vandalism uh, stronger and then uh, uh, more generally stronger relationships among students and staff so I think there's some data to suggest that tier one circles uh, are uh, are effective not only in building community but also reducing Mm -hmm climate-related harm.
0: And that, the presentation that you just described, do you happen to know if that's available somewhere online? It sounds like something that I'm sure probably, I know I'm interested in looking at. Is that something that you would recommend?
1: People would have to contact the Office of Residential Life at at the University of Vermont. I'm drawing on seeing them present at a conference, not on a document right. that
0: I've published. Right, right. Wonderful. Well, I just want to thank everybody for being here today. We have another 30 minutes with uh, David Karp, who is the director of the Project on Restorative Justice at Skidmore College. And the Project on Restorative Justice at Skidmore conducts research, training, teaching, and technical assistance for restorative justice projects in schools, universities, communities, and the criminal justice system. And just a reminder that you are warmly welcome to ask a live question today by pressing star 2 with your keypad uh, on your phone. You can also go to the webcast and make sure to press the Q&A tab if you would, would like to pre- uh, ins- insert a question in that pane. And um, that's right next to your webcast viewer. Just press the Q&A tab too ask a question and we actually do have one um, coming in from Angela and I want to thank Angela um, from IARP in Bethlehem Pennsylvania for being a part of this community and for all the work that you do Angela Um, she asks what has been your biggest challenge when supporting various higher ed institutions and how have you addressed or softened these challenges and she says thank you She's happy to be here today.
1: Yeah, uh, it, you know it's interesting when we when I first got started with this, and I would talk to uh, student affairs administrators, the administrators who uh, work with students and you know outside the classroom. Uh, they they really thought that this restorative justice thing was pretty nutty, uh, and I you know and that that was a you know that that existed for a few years, but I would say in the last even decade, uh, student affairs professionals have fully embraced the restorative justice philosophy. That does not mean that they're implementing it, but I don't get challenged very often that this is a, a, the wrong thing to do. Uh, student affairs professionals are very oriented towards Education and uh, and development of students. So they, it's not like the criminal justice contrast where you often have people with a very punitive framework uh, versus a restorative framework. Uh, here you have people who really want the best for their students, uh, and really the the shift is from what they do, which is a more traditional motivational interviewing approach focused on individual student development. Meaning, you know. Let me talk to you about how you got yourself into this mess that you've made and how you can make better decisions in the future. Uh, And then enhancing that conversation with a bunch of restorative questions or processes that enable students to learn not only how to make better decisions for themselves, but what impact that they've had on the community and what obligations or responsibilities they have to make things right. Uh, So... um, so there's a, uh, there's a hurdle, uh, moving, moving administrators from embracing the philosophy to implementing practices, um, you know, programmatically, and that, that often requires policy change, uh, as well as, you know, some resources dedicated to this. Uh, so some campuses have done this phenomenally well. I'd say that's probably the biggest hurdle. People just are busy and they don't know how to take the next steps. Uh, And then there are more specialized arenas where it's challenging. um, And that would be in cases of um, bias incidents, particularly around race issues uh, or around um, uh, sexual harm or sexual misconduct or Title IX issues where there's been, uh, been a slower process or implementing or embracing the philosophy. Uh, and um, it, I think it's more challenging in those arenas. Uh, but we're definitely, uh, there's definitely growing interest in, in those arenas right now.
0: And, David, are you, uh, at Skidmore Campus, are you actively um, doing a restorative justice process with sexual harm cases, or are you moving towards that? At this uh,
1: I don't know if we're moving towards it uh, This part of the divide of being a faculty member versus being a student mm-hmm. affairs administrator. Uh, I know our Title IX coordinator has told me personally that he thinks it would be a great idea but I haven't seen any movement uh, and I would say Skidmore is a typical risk averse uh, institution and so uh, taking on a new approach is hard. Um, there are other campuses that are doing much more uh, and campuses now that are um, I think that their risk aversion has shifted in the, in the other direction like in order to um, protect against lawsuits they are actively pursuing restorative justice uh, as opposed to not doing it because they're afraid it's new or different uh, and there's so much um, uh, pressure from both above and below, meaning federal guidance, Trump administration, what's going to happen with them, uh, backlash against the Me Too movement, um, increasingly adversarial environment for uh, formal hearings uh, that's pushing a lot of people to consider informal resolution processes like restorative justice to best serve students that's kind of top-down pressure and then there's really quite a bit of pressure from students saying we want options that you're not providing uh, so I think most folks are not going to eliminate any kind of formal hearing process uh, but they're just trying to increase the number of options available to students and when they do uh, what we're seeing is that students are uh, gravitating towards restorative processes
0: mm-hmm and I just want to throw out that also our colleague, Sujata Baliga, I believe she has um, a recent article or paper on sexual harm and how restorative justice can respond to it that might be of interest to our circle of participants today um, and in the future. I, I believe it's posted online. You're, you're probably aware of that, David, yes?
1: Yeah, she talks about a case... In uh, high school, and that's another huge arena for this. Is in K 12, mm-hmm. uh, as Title IX affects uh, that arena as well. And uh, Sujapa and, and her colleagues are also very interested in um, chi- uh, child sexual abuse and restorative practices for that kind of um, harm that happened, you know, many er- years earlier, uh, and those relationships mm-hmm. are still fractured. There are other people talking about the church, sexual abuse scandals, and the potential for restorative justice to address that. And and then more generally, lots of people are calling attention to RJ in response to the Me Too movement, uh, basically saying we can't arrest our way out of this problem. We can't suspend our way out of this problem. We can't fire people out of this problem that the, um, that the issues around sexual harm are so broad and so contentious that we need to create spaces for people to really talk through uh, the impact uh, of this behavior on people's lives. And it's not just individual harm. On campuses, we see these ripple effects that uh, that go out across friendship circles, across teams, across um, departments, when it's a faculty member who's been accused. Uh, and so there's uh, uh, addressing the individual incident and direct harms, but also the broader uh, climate that's created within these uh, smaller communities uh, that mm-hmm. uh, lingers and lingers until it gets uh, until there's a process to help people talk it through.
0: Well, thank you so much. I'm so delighted to have you here today, David, and um, I have a really powerful question coming in from Mary. Uh, Thank you so much, Mary, for earmarking this. Um, She says, Hi, everyone. I'm very interested in the cultural roots of restorative justice, partly because it's important to acknowledge and thank the sources of our circle practices, but also because I think that greater self-awareness of our cultural roots will help us regain a consciousness of our fundamental connections to community and one another. I also think it will help those of us who are white, decolonize ourselves to really connect with our cultural traditions, especially those that encourage restorative practices in our lives. I wonder if you are interested in this angle as well, Dr. Karp, and if so, what are your reflections on your own cultural identity? Thank you for considering this question. So thank you, Mary.
1: That's a great question, and it's a hot topic Uh, there's a lot of debate within the restorative justice community about um, ideas of cultural appropriation of indigenous practices uh, or whether it is culturally responsive uh, approaches restorative practices uh, to uh, meet the needs of indigenous communities uh, whether it's just a cultural, cultural appreciation uh, as we learn at, uh, from uh, different cultures and their practices. So there's a lot going on uh, and there's definitely no consensus around these issues. Uh, it's certainly the case that the two primary practices that are used on college campuses have different indigenous roots and, uh, and those are worth acknowledging that conferencing has its origins in um, Maori practice. Uh, family group conferencing is a rough translation of a Maori restorative-like process, uh, but it got codified into practice uh, in Australia, not by Maori, and it's not like the current models are direct reflection of uh, indigenous practice. And then similarly. The circle practice, which is primarily used in Tier 1 uh, community building on campuses, uh, comes from First Nations peoples, Native American uh, practices uh, in Canada and the U.S. Uh, and so the use of a talking piece, um, some of the more ceremonial aspects of circles, uh, have their roots in those traditions. And, um, and so, you know, what we're all asking, well, what does it mean? Uh, to learn from or borrow from uh, or acknowledge other cultures and then what uh, what is also drawn from uh, various traditions, Western traditions uh, there. I th- every culture has its own uh, origin story for restorative practices, so there's there's so many ways to explore this. Uh, I, I'm Jewish. And I, you know, reflect on uh, restorative philosophy and practice that, uh, that comes uh, from uh, Jewish tradition. Uh, we, it's this, uh, the end of October, so it's just post the High Holy Days, and um, uh, Yom Kippur uh, as a High Holy Day is really all about restorative justice. So there are many different ways people can relate uh, to these practices, uh, and one of the other, um, uh, things that's happening on campuses and I, that I help coordinate is that there is a network, uh, of, um, enthusiasts of restorative justice among Catholic campuses and the document that's come out of this, uh, restorative justice network of Catholic campuses, uh, is, uh, one that relates restorative principles and philosophy to Catholic social thought and uh, um, really reflecting on your earlier bishops statements uh, the bishops statement in 2000 on criminal justice uh, speaks to restorative justice and it, um the alignment of uh, some of the um, principles in Catholic social thought and uh, restorative justice are really represented on those campuses which is pretty interesting
0: Thank you. Thanks, David. We're we're really getting some great questions coming in off the webcast, so if I might seg from that um, gracefully to a question that um, Katie is asking. Thank you, Katie. She says, uh, how can we encourage those who are raised in more individualistic communities and cultures to be more group restoration oriented? And, Katie, if I might add, if you don't mind, um, how can we befriend conflict um, to a certain degree if we come from those individualistic communities and cultures? I can relate to her question, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Thank you, Katie.
1: Yeah. uh, Well, I'm teaching a first-year seminar uh, called We Can Work It Out, and it's an exploration of restorative practices and mediation and conflict coaching, and it's very clear to me that, Um, students coming to college are hungry for a sense of community and for authentic dialogue around uh, issues of of concern to them and us uh, and that they don't have the tools for it. That uh, there is something significant about the change in communication from face-to-face to to digital uh, and there's a lot more hesitation about uh, engaging in conflict face-to-face uh, and so um, I think it, it, it seems like it's fundamental civic education at this point to provide young people with the skills uh, to engage in uh, just basic dialogue let alone uh, conflict situations or uh, harm situations uh, but I guess I'm optimistic about that since I consistently get students who really want these skills uh, and um, and take to the uh, circle conversations uh, rather naturally. Um, so maybe it's uh, it, it's really framing, particularly on a college campus or maybe in K twelve, uh, as an opportunity for uh, interpersonal competence development or communication skill development. Uh, and and we offer a pretty simple, straightforward method for people to talk to each other about difficult things
0: Mm, I love that and I know I just want to throw in Renee Brown's work uh, on a book I believe it's called um, something about being brave sorry I don't have the exact title in front of me but she she refers to the normalization of uh, befriending conflict that within our organizations and our communities how can we help each other normalize Um, that conflict is a part of community and it actually can bring us closer together on the other end of it, perhaps. (laughs) So um, let's go to another question. There's a couple of questions that come back to the ground level of things and I think they are important to address. Danielle asks if you would be willing to speak more about emerging restorative justice work on college campuses in cases of sexual harm and what measures those programs are taking to support victims while ensuring offender accountability. So um, thank you, David, if you'd be willing. Yeah,
1: sure. Yeah. Uh, well, there's two distinct arenas that uh, on college campuses right now. One is about Student to student harm, uh, and that uh, um, that discussion, national co- discussion, has been ongoing. Uh, there is a gra- quite a big grassroots movement by students and others, uh, sur- survivors, uh, to hold campuses more accountable for how they respond to reports of sexual assault and other misconduct. Uh, And then there was, in the Obama administration, quite a bit of federal guidance about how to, uh, how campuses should do this. Uh, And so restorative justice has just been part of that larger discussion. So that's one arena. And then the other is much more recent and really a response to the Me Too movement is about faculty or staff uh, misconduct, particularly harassment. Uh, And so we're... I'm uh, um, particularly concerned with the uh, power dynamics when a faculty member uh, sexually harasses a, a say, graduate student and that student is dependent on that faculty member for recommendations or public research co-authorship, uh, so how do they navigate those issues? And I, I, I would say, I mean, this is like, uh, you know, maybe overly glib, but HR departments really don't know how to handle these issues. I think they're probably okay at a basic level with a formal investigation and determining whether a faculty member has violated a policy. But the fallout from these cases is just astonishing. Uh, you know, they're departments that are deeply divided. People are not talking to each other. They've taken sides. Um, students leave, faculty members leave. Uh, there's just a lot of pain around these issues uh, for um, people who are just even very indirectly touched by these issues. So uh, some of the work is really at this broader level uh, to bring, you know, measures of healing and response uh to these situations as they arise and there uh complaints almost every day filed somewhere um and then on the student side uh what we what we know uh which is uh just terrible is that the rates of sexual assault are extraordinarily high uh maybe like 30ish percent of Female students will report some, some kind of sexual assault experience during their time at college, and um, a tiny percentage of those students will report that uh, victimization to anybody on campus. And that's like counseling center. I mean, the confidential sources, health services, uh, let alone the disciplinary body for adjudicating cases. Uh, so there's one study that only 2% of victimized students will file a formal complaint and there will be some kind of hearing or investigation. Uh, so there there is a, a huge mismatch between the adjudication process that's offered to students and their willingness uh, to pursue it. So we're really you know, people often say, well, it's a choice between a formal process and RJ. It isn't. It's really a choice between doing nothing, which is what students are choosing, and uh, you know, potentially an RJ-like process. And so what, um, there, there are challenges with this. One of them is that the RJ calendar and the academic calendar don't necessarily align. That is, we often want to help resolve these things during the semester before people disappear. But a survivor's healing journey is their journey that could be slow and, um, uh, you know, slow and ponderous. Uh, And so they're making their own decisions on their own timeline. Uh, And so navigating um, their own healing journey with uh, some kind of resolution process is, is really hard. Uh, and then, there, you know, there are a ton of other issues uh, uh, associated with this. And if people are interested, they can go to our website uh, or Google the Campus PRISM project that's promoting restorative initiatives uh, for sexual misconduct. Uh, and uh, we have a report that kind of describes a lot of the issues associated with this, as well as the potential for some really good uh, uh Supplementary offerings to what campuses are doing now.
0: Mm. We would be happy to send out a link to that report, David, in our follow-up email to registrants with the recording of today's session, if that's permissible with you. Um, We'd be happy to add that to the email. Um, there's another great question, and it just goes with a detail that I think links back to the situation that you described at the outset of today's dialogue. Vicki asks, um, when a student's case is in the justice system and also going through restorative justice on campus, do you provide the student with a document to take to court showing that they participated in a restorative justice process and what the outcome was? Thank you, Vicki.
1: Yeah, that, that's handled differently on campuses. Uh, so, for example, I mentioned Boulder as a place that's been doing RJ for a long time, and they have a very clear relationship with the courts where someone, a student, is arrested, uh, and then they get directly referred to the campus restorative justice program, and it's handled there. Other campuses have... Uh, agreements with their local district attorneys. Uh, so we had one of those um, where a student who is arrested, basically, we just invited our DA to, to uh, observe our, our restorative process, and then he, the DA, that was the one DA ago, he said, "Wow, you guys do a lot more than we do uh, in terms of accountability." So uh, we're happy to have you handle the case, and then we'll uh, basically dismiss it uh, afterwards. Uh, But there's, uh, so sometimes there are some close partnerships with the courts and campuses, and other times they operate independently, uh, and almost always the campuses respond more quickly than the courts do. Uh, So there is opportunity to get that information over to the courts that might influence what decisions they make. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And David, I was curious a while ago. You were you were sharing a bit about your facilitate your student facilitators, and I'm wondering what kind of process they go through to become a student facilitator on campus. And then the second part of my question is around what what do you feel makes an ACE facilitator?
1: Hmm. Uh, well, we offer training. Uh, you know, on campuses and people either come to our campus for training or we visit other campuses and there are often students involved and I don't think the training is different for students than it is for staff uh, and that is it really has to be very experiential so they need to learn the philosophy uh, of restorative justice but really they need to practice. Uh, and so we do a ton of role play uh, so that they can get a sense of what the uh, the facilitation is all about. And there's, uh, it, it feels different if you're focusing on Tier 1 circles versus uh, Tier 2 conferencing in response to harm. And then there's c- certainly additional training needed for more complex cases like sexual harm. Uh, uh, so there's um, there's layers to it. I think in terms of um, the best facilitators, they've got a... a a blend of um, I guess adeptness with understanding and applying principle to practice so that they get what the steps are in the process so that's a little bit formal like I know how to do this and deliver a model but then also they're able to bring themselves as human beings to the facilitation process and be not robotic facilitators, but human beings recognizing that they're on a journey uh, with the participants involved, uh, and so there's there needs to be quite a bit of trust building between the participants and the facilitators. So if they have that uh, orientation, they're probably in, in good shape.
0: Mm. Thank you, and I know we're coming towards the top of the hour And I'd love to just circle back around to the project on restorative justice at Skidmore. You had mentioned your initiatives, that one of them, of course, is Campus Prism. Um, You also have, of course, quite a few other initiatives, and I wondered if you'd like to just uh, mention a couple of those or highlight a couple of them, and anything else that might be Um, going on in your neck of the woods around restorative justice on campuses, um, projects, uh, upcoming events, anything you'd like to share with all of us today?
1: Uh, Sure. Well, our project, uh, all the work we have in some way is related to uh, higher education, but they're uh, often partnerships. So I mentioned the Campus Prism Project, which is around uh, Title IX or sexual misconduct. And I mentioned the RJ network of Catholic campuses. Uh, we, there's another network that is specifically focused on addressing bias incidents, uh, particularly around race issues. Uh, and then we have community-based partnerships. There's a uh, big effort in New York right now associated with the Raise the Age legislation, which increased the age of adult criminality from 16 to 18. And... Probation departments in particular are rolling out new programming as they receive 16 and 17 year olds. Uh, we work a lot with K through 12 schools. I'm particularly enamored with my students that facilitate circles in K through 12 world. Uh, so I teach a class and train s- students to facilitate tier one circles and then they go off to elementary, middle, and high schools. Uh, has an opportunity to facilitate circles with
0: uh, younger
1: students. Uh, And then another initiative we have is uh, working uh, in the arena of uh, the health professions, so med schools, uh, nursing schools, uh, those, uh, but particularly working with the uh, Association of American Medical Colleges uh, to bring restorative practices to address Issues of what they describe as learner mistreatment, and that's often faculty or residents or someone in a hospital mistreating med students in some way. Uh, and so, those um, how do we how do we hold them accountable uh, in a good way for the harm they're causing as students are getting educated? Uh, so we have a number of different initiatives. Uh, people can certainly visit our website to learn more or to connect through various online networks that we coordinate. Uh, sign up for those if one of those arenas particularly interesting to folks. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll stop there.
0: And just to add that that website address, very specific to the initiatives, is skidmore.edu backslash campusRJ backslash project. So if you surf on over to skidmore.edu just go backslash campusrj backslash projects.php I guess you probably have to add the php at the end there. <laughs> and David
1: actually if you're oh, you can just do skidmorerj.org and that'll perfect. get you there.
0: Thank you. Perfect. Would you be willing to share a way that people can contact you if they have further questions about this dialogue today and about what you're up to? Is there a, a general contact um, at the Project on Restorative Justice that you'd like to mention? Sure.
1: The easiest thing to do is just go to the website, but you can also email rjproject at skidmore.edu.
0: Wonderful. Well, once again, everyone, it's always a pleasure and, an, and it's been an honor to have such a wonderful circle dialogue with you today and of course with our very special guest, David Karp from the Project on Restorative Justice at Skidmore College. And by the way, the book that I mentioned, thank you to Patricia, is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. It's a great book. Um, probably many of you have already read it. I just happened to open it up recently and was inspired by that concept of normalizing conflict and normalizing in our day-to-day atmospheres um, within organizations so that we can offer an internal practice as well as, of course, to our communities. So, David, thank you so much for being with us and really looking forward to seeing you next year, hopefully in June. Um, I guess my last question is will you be at the June conference in Denver? And will you be possibly doing an abstract or a presentation or some form of activity there?
1: I will absolutely be there. And uh, I'm just submitting a proposal that is really trying to highlight our broader team, so there's going to be a panel if it's accepted a panel of folks who are going to talk about the different kinds of applications uh, that they're doing on different campuses, from um, bias incidents to sexual harm to everyday misconduct uh, and beyond. So it'll be a uh, great opportunity for folks to learn about um, RJ on campuses from a variety of practitioners.
0: Mm. That sounds fabulous. And so, again, for those of you who are interested in more information about that conference, that's at nacrj.org. Registration is open. Early bird is um, applying right now. And also abstracts are being accepted. As I hope that gets um, accepted. I can't imagine that it won't, David. Um, So thank you again, everyone. It's been a pleasure. This is Molly Rowan Leach on behalf. Of restorative justice on the rise and we hope to see you in the weeks to come really excited to be hosting William Bledsoe from the restorative way Um, topic will be when restorative solutions do not happen Um, and then in the weeks to come we're also going to be looking at empathy and its effects on the brain Um, what fear does to our brain and how we can respond and strengthen our empathy muscles And that's going to be with Sarah Payton, who is a wonderful author and speaker. Um, So join us again for more information on this series that was founded in 2011. Go and tune in to our archives at restorativejusticeontherise.org. And once again, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. The conference is now completed. Goodbye. Welcome to the conference. Please enter the conference ID, followed by the pound key. Thank you.